Good morning, everybody. Great to, uh, great to be with you. And uh, had a wonderful time at the uh, 9 o'clock session talking about uh, discipleship. We okay back there? Okay. Um, actually, that's... Uh, how I connected uh, with Trent, it was at the memorial service. I had, uh, in preparation for coming up here to kind of co-lead the memorial service for Duke Schneider, I had uh, gone to uh, uh, check out the uh, website on Zion, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't miss the emphasis on discipleship. So when I got here, I said, hey, I, wanna, I, I, I love your emphasis on discipleship here at Zion. I want to pick your brain. Let's uh, sit together and talk at the reception, which we did. And that began a relationship. And uh, uh, so it's just been uh, fun getting to know your pastor and uh, uh, just being a kindred spirit because uh, we have very similar uh, convictions about discipleship. And uh, I was uh, thrilled to uh, get his invitation to kick off this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, it's a well-known passage uh, where the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 22, says, For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Many commentators have uh, divided those into three clusters. Uh, love, joy, and peace in our relationship with God, patience, kindness, goodness in our relationships with others, and uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our relationship toward self. So uh, I'm excited to dig into this. Let's begin in a word of prayer. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we invite you as we open your word to illuminate our hearts and minds that we might uh, follow your Paths. We humble ourselves before you and ask that your spirit would come and be our teacher, that your word would be our guide, and that your glory would be our greatest passion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, what I want to do this morning is, is basically two things. First of all, I want to give you the backstory of Galatians so you understand uh, how you can connect some dots and how the fruit of the spirit um, actually connects to what the larger message of Galatians is. And then I want to do a deep dive on the first fruit of the Spirit, which is love. So, um, let's begin with uh, a couple things about the backstory. You need to understand the audience. In the second verse, chapter 1 of Galatians, Paul says, to the churches in Galatia. So, Paul is not writing to an urban church like Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, but to a, a network, a cluster of churches in a rural region of Asia Minor, what was then Asia Minor, today is Turkey, uh, and the region was known as Galatia. Uh, the churches which he planted there on his first missionary journey, and you can read about the, this backstory in Acts 13 and 14. I would encourage you to do that this week just so you kind of have the context for this uh, series on the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to note the, the map up here uh, of Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, you'll notice uh, that Christianity starts down here in Jerusalem. And remember, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So uh, Paul actually starts his first journey from Antioch. The early church is already beginning this kind of exponential growth. Uh, that's modern-day Syria. 
and uh, he's at the church at Antioch. He's commissioned. He comes down here uh, to Cyprus, an island. He makes his way up here, and you, you can kind of see the outline of Turkey here. And right in the middle here, kind of a central Turkey, uh, you'll see uh, Antioch Pisidia, which is uh, Pisidia's uh, version of Antioch, Iconium, Derby, Lystra. You'll remember some of those names. Well, that's where Paul, on his first missionary journey, planted these churches in a, essentially a rural area. And, and he's saying to his audience um, of primarily farmers who are involved in agriculture all the time, you guys understand fruit trees. You understand how fruit grows. And, and I want you to understand how Christians grow. Um, secondly, I, I want you to understand the purpose here. As Christianity is exploding exponentially, uh, one of the first controversies that hits these fledgling churches were the so-called Judaizers. Now, Judaizers was a name given to some early Jewish missionaries from Jerusalem who wanted to add something to Paul's gospel. And uh, when Paul would establish churches and then leave and move on, these Judaizers uh, would come in and they would say, hey, this is fine, you know, and good that you want to follow Jesus and believe in him, but you need to also keep the law of Moses and the certain Jewish rites, circumcision and other things. And uh, so Paul is writing, that's what triggers Paul's letter, is this this kind of heresy, this air that's creeping into the churches that he has planted. And he's rightly ticked off, you know, not only at the Judaizers, but at the new believers who he says, in effect, are deserting the gospel that Paul had preached to them and falling into legalism. Try, legalism is simply trying to be justified through works of the law rather than through God's grace through faith. Now, Paul, what Paul wants to say to these new believers, he's, he's trying to thread a needle here uh, through a kind of a theological mine, uh, <laughs> uh, landmine. Uh, and you'll, you'll see a, a chart that's going to come up here. And let me just explain it to you. What, <coughs> what Galatians is trying to do in a nutshell, the big, the big idea of Galatians, um, is that you are to avoid this extreme right here of legalism, uh, that the Judaizers were trying to impose, and you need to avoid the other extreme of license on the other end, which is just saying, well, hey, since we're forgiven, uh, you know, we're going to heaven anyway, what the heck, let's just go ahead and sin. And, and Paul's saying, no, you've got to avoid the extremes, and you've got to learn to live by the Spirit, which will produce the what? The fruit of the Spirit. Say, In other words, you've got to get your focus on the provision that God has made to help you keep the law. The law is good, and it's good for you, but it's not by trying in your own efforts to keep it, but rather it's by relying on the Spirit of God, the resources that God gives you, uh, that is going to actually produce that kind of growth. Um, The license group on the left, you remember, kind of crops up again and again in the New Testament, uh, where, where they say, well, as long as we're you know, forgiven, why don't we just go on and send it up? And uh, Paul says, by no means. How shall we who died to sin now live in it? The genius, you see, of the Christian life is that God provides not only forgiveness of sins, but the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
the indwelling life of Christ inside the believer to live a life that we couldn't live on our own resources. That's why the primary description of a disciple in the New Testament is one who is in Christ or in him or in the beloved. It's stressing our new union with Christ, our new identity that we are in Christ. Uh, and, and so biblical Christianity, rightly understood, is not about turning over a new leaf in our own energy, but rather receiving a new life, the life of the Holy Spirit that God implants uh, within a believer. One, uh, one uh, ancient writer called it the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, God puts a new nature in your life, the Holy Spirit, and that new nature creates new desires, new affections, new loves. And those loves are what propel you forward. You see this all through the New Testament. Notice these uh, passages. In uh, 2 Peter, uh, he says, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, in Galatians, uh, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What's new about it? You got a new nature you never had before, the life of the Holy Spirit inside you. He produces new desires, new affections, new capacities, new possibilities. Now, this brings us to our series on the fruit of the Spirit, where Paul is going to contrast the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And you can kind of hear it in the language. The works of the Spirit implies what? Human, uh, human effort. Fruit of the Spirit implies the work of God within you, uh, a, a divine empowerment. So let's say just a final word here from uh, in an introductory sense about uh, the imagery, the fruit of the Spirit. Think of that metaphor for just a second. It is, uh, it's a, a metaphor is a literary vehicle that draws a comparison from one thing to another. It's saying, uh, in this case, a comparison between the growth of fruit and the growth of a Christ follower. Uh, first of all, it's a good figure of speech to use with people involved in agriculture. They understood this. Um, you, you plant a seed in, in, in soil and depending on what kind of seed you, you plant, that's gonna be the fruit you're gonna get. If you plant an apple seed, you're gonna get an apple. If you plant uh, tomatoes, you're gonna, you're gonna get tomatoes. If you, get, if you plant a tomato seed. So it starts with planting a seed, and then there's this process that takes time and needs to be nurtured. You know, God's involved, he, he provides sun, he provides rain, but you have to prune the plants, you have to enrich the soil in certain cases with fer, uh, fertilizer and um, so forth. And then finally, you produce a harvest, you see, as you, uh, you know, as you work with those plants. And farmers understood the need for patience. They understood that growth is a slow incremental process before time-lapse photography. You know, you couldn't see oranges getting bigger, you couldn't see tomatoes getting brighter hues of, of red, you couldn't see flowers blooming. You could stand and stare at it, but you couldn't see it. You know, you can't see uh, growth, it's, it's, it's so slow. It's like a, you know, a young male or female athlete, 16 years old, if you ask them, are you faster this year than you were last year? And they'd go, 
I don't know. You see, you can't really tell unless you've got a stopwatch, unless you have a way of measuring uh, against it. Uh, the, only, uh, uh, the only way to, to, to tell growth, uh, you see, is over time. And uh, so growth, you know, growth is real, it happens, but the nature is, is such that it's so slow, you can't really see it. And this is how God works most of the time. I remember my daughter, she's tall, she's grown now, adult woman, 6'1". Uh, and uh, when she was a little girl, you know, she was taller than everybody in her class. You look at her, you know, at her elementary school picture, and they thought she was a teacher because she was like a head taller than everybody else in there, and her teacher was short. And uh, um, we would tell her, you know, yeah, drink your milk, you'll grow, and stuff like that. And one day she said the oddest thing to us. She said, Dad, I don't think I'm growing. And I thought, well, that's an odd thing to say. You're the biggest kid in your class. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, 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 then I, I put it to the connection. Oh, she's remembering our, you know, drink your milk. It'll help you to grow up. And so I got out a picture of her about two years earlier, and I showed her the contrast. Now, that's the way spiritual growth works. If you keep trying to pull up the roots, you're not going to see it. Um, but if you look over a year, five years, ten years, you're going to see uh, growth. That's the way God has designed it. And that fruit of the Spirit is primarily relational. It's a description of Jesus in many ways. Uh, that's how God works to make us more and more like Jesus, just like fruit is grown. Okay, so let, let's turn our attention to the first fruit, which we're going to look at now, uh, that Paul mentions, and that is love. Let, let, let me say, as we look at this, R Rudyard Kipling had a great line. He said, I have six faithful serving friends. They taught me all I know. Their names are who, what, where, when, why, and how. Now, that's a technique actually from journalism school. That's how they teach young reporters to, to do stories. Just ask your basic questions and, you know, and fill them in. It's also a great Bible study technique. Uh, I teach people this all the time. If you want to get more out of your Bible, don't just read it, ask questions of it. It'll take you to another level. Take, use those questions. Who, what, where, when, why, how? And then use a Bible dictionary. Uh, actually, now you can, it's easy. You can use your little device, <laughs> you know, and just ask them, uh, who are the Judaizers and in the New Testament? And you'll get a you'll get an answer. And you can just, uh, you know, fill it out that way. Well, that's how we're going to work through this. So I want to ask just a series of questions. Uh, the first one is, why did Paul mention love as the first fruit? And the answer in a nutshell is because love is what mattered most to Jesus. Um, you know, according to Jesus, that's what it meant to be his follower, to be a disciple of Jesus, was to be one who loved, who loved God and who loved others. Remember the, uh, uh, the great commandment. He said in Mark chapter 20, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now what he did was he, the, the, the lawyer asked him, uh, what's the great commandment, the greatest commandment, and he answers by giving two commandments, one from Deuteronomy 6 and the other from Leviticus 19, to, to in a sense elevate the other one because he knew the tendency was going to be to say, well, yeah, I love God, but I don't love my neighbor. So he's putting them on the same level. 
And then notice he says, he gives the tagline, there is no commandment greater than these. Uh, Notice again in uh, John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Notice the emphasis on that second half of the great commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, notice how John picks this up. The apostle John says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. In other words, this is not just something I came up with. This was the message from the very beginning with Jesus, that you should what? Love one another. You see how he's simply echoing the words of Jesus. And this is is pretty rich coming from a guy like John. As a young man, John and James, you you know what their nicknames were? The Sons of Thunder. You know how they got that name? They, they were not well received in one of the villages where, where Jesus preached. And so John says, let's call down fire from heaven, Lord, and burn out these suckers. Boy, he didn't say it quite that way, but that was the gist of it. Uh, you know, he wanted to make these guys ash in a flash. Not a real loving guy, right? At the end of his life, he was called the apostle of love. <laughs> he used to go around on the Isle of Patmos where he'd been banished, and, uh, and, and the church there would, in his senior years, would carry him around on a mat, and he would just go, all he would say is, love one another, love one another, love one another. Now that's quite a transformation, isn't it? But notice, it was just like the growth of fruit. It was a slow ripening over time. Paul, uh, or Peter first, uh, picks up the same emphasis. Notice in 1 Peter 1. um, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. And then the Apostle Paul. You're starting to see this pattern, right? You know, they're all repeating it. Love one another, love one another. Um, In the the great uh, love chapter, now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, Paul said, but the greatest of these is what? Love. And then he closes his book in chapter 16 by saying, let all that is done be done in love. And in the very chapter we're, we're studying here, chapter five of Galatians, he said, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love one another as yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the, those are the cliff notes. He's saying, he's saying, if you want to follow the 365 commandments of God, the, you know, the rabbis had kind of condensed everything into commandments and so forth, um, and prohibitions, and there were 360, some of them. Uh, he said, but if you want the cliff notes, love. Because if you love, you won't commit adultery. If you love, you won't lie. If you love, you won't steal. If you love, you won't be greedy. Um, So if there's anything that can be said to be primary or central or essential to being a Christian, to becoming more like Christ, it must be this, love one another. Now you might be saying, all right already, I get it, love one another, but what's that really mean? I mean, what does it look like to love other people? Let's take a bird's eye view, first of all, and then we'll come down and get real practical. What, what does, the question number two is, what does biblical love, agape love, uh, look like? And in a nutshell, it's a self-giving, other-centered 
kind of love. Think of the two uh, central concepts of the Christian faith, the cradle and the cross. The former points to the incarnation, and the latter points to the crucifixion. Both are expressions, if you think about it, of God's self-giving and other-centeredness. God so loved that he what? Gave. He's self-giving. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many are others. So you see, self-giving, other-centered, is what biblical love, agape love, is all about. Human love is I love you if, I love you because. Uh, God says, I love you in spite of. That's who I am. I, God is love. I can't help but be expressed by nature. And that nature is self-giving and other-centered. I've married lots of uh, folks over the years. I've done a lot of uh, pre-marriage counseling. And one of the things I always tell them is if you want your marriage to succeed, build your, your relationship around a self-giving, other-centered, agape kind of love. Um, and and I, I normally tell them this, this story. In fact, I use it in every uh, little marriage homily that I do. I say, you know, there's a, a period in which you see this kind of self-giving, other-centered love. It's, it's called the, uh, the uh, uh, dating or uh, what do they call it? Courtship. And, you know, it's like mission impossible to the guy. You know, it's like he's going to do whatever he has to do to get this girl's hand in marriage. And so he, you know, he, he, he sends her chocolates and, 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 and flowers and he writes poetry. How many of you guys wrote poetry? Any of you? Yeah, a couple of you. See? See what I mean? And then, you know, it comes the wedding day and Mission Impossible becomes Mission Accomplished. And all those little expressions of, I loved you, uh, you know, I appreciate you, you know, begin to go by the wayside. Uh, now, that's really, that's, that's beginning to mirror agape love, but he's doing it for his own selfish purposes. But, you know, it helps to make the point that the only way we can love like that, you know, love your enemies, you know, self-giving, other-centered love, uh, love when it hurts, is we've got to get a new nature. <laughs> we've, we've got to get the new life that only Christ can give us inside us because that's the, that's the power to live a life we couldn't live uh, other ways. Uh, next question. Uh, let's go from a bird's eye view to a worm's eye view. So how does that biblical agape express itself in very practical ways? The answer in a nutshell is the one another commands of Scripture. Um, I asked the group this morning, they said, yeah, you're familiar with the idea. Um, when Jesus said, a new command I give to you that you love one another, it's interesting that over 50 times the New Testament writers use um, an action verb, they substitute an action verb for love with a little phrase, one another. It's almost as if they're trying to say, this is what it looks like to love one another. Uh, notice, let me just give you a brief sampling here. Bear one another's burdens, confess one an- comfort one another, encourage one another, speak truth to one another, care for one another, be hospitable to one another, pray for one another, serve one another, clothe yourself in humility towards one another. Do you see that action verb followed by the little, you know, one another? 
More, more than 50 of these in the, in the New Testament. And, and that reoccurring word pattern is very intentional. It, it's translating the, the word love or agape into practical action. It's saying this is what it looks like to love one another in, in practical terms. You could think of it as a beam of light dispersed through a, a prism. Um, if you see that uh, next slide there, there's a, there's a prism, and that beam of light, as it goes through the prism, refracts into all the different colors of the rainbow. When a beam of love, agape love, goes through the people of God, it begins to refract into all those one another commands. Encourage one another, care for one another, serve one another, Stir one, and up, one another up to love and good deeds. Be hospitable to one another. And on and on and on. Where does the motivation and inspiration to love like this come from? It comes from the spirit of Christ and the example of Christ. The spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Listen to this verse from Philippians chapter 2. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now notice, what is God's work? God's work, as he first implants that seed, the new nature of the Holy Spirit, is that the new nature produces new desires, new affections. You begin to love God. You begin to want to do what God wants you to do. And he gives you a new capacity, a new capability that you didn't have apart from his spirit living within you. Now, secondly, not only his power within you, but the Holy Spirit's prompting um, not only the Holy Spirit's prompting, but the example of Jesus begins to inspire you. He starts pointing you in the right direction as well as empowering you to get there. Note, note this other pattern from Scripture. Um, and and there, there's a, a pattern of command and then comparison. He, he, he makes a command, but then he, he makes the comparison. Um, for instance, the command, love one another. Well, how? How do I do that? As I have loved you, how did he love? Sacrificially would be a good word. Um, or the command, accept one another. Note the comparison. As I have loved you. Unconditionally would be a good, good way to, that's how God accepted us, unconditionally. And command, forgive one another. How? As I have forgiven you. God forgives us completely, doesn't he? So how are we to live? Well, we're, we follow the example of Christ to love sacrificially, unconditionally, completely, as he did. And we can only do that by means of his spirit at work within us. So when we step back and reflect on these commands, we see that Agape love means that we relate to others the way God relates to us. God loves us, so we love others. God accepts us, we accept others. God forgives us, we forgive others. Hopefully you're starting to see a pattern here too. Uh, of how, you know, God's work in our lives addresses 
the most fundamental problem that we have. C.K. Chesterton, a great British writer generations ago, uh, was asked, what's the matter with the world? And he wrote back, I am. <laughs> that was the most theologically profound uh, answer that question's ever gotten. Um, in other words, the theologians used to call it incurvatus, a Latin word that means our nature is curved inward. And so that's why we're so self-absorbed with ourselves. That's why we're so self-centered. That's why we're so selfish. And what does Christianity do? It changes that curve upward towards God, a new affection. We begin to love God, and we begin to love others. You see, that's what true Christianity does. Last question, what's the end game? What's, what's the point of all this self-giving and other-centeredness? What does Paul hope to uh, accomplish through this ripening fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Listen to these words from John 13. By this, all men shall know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, when, when the church in all of its diversity, black, white, Latino, rich, poor, middle class, is seen caring for one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, speaking truth into each other's lives, uh, stirring each other up to love and good deeds, the world sits up and takes notice because they've never seen anything like this. They have never seen that kind of self-giving other-centeredness in any kind of community. Think about the metaphors that are used in the New Testament for the church, a light in the world, salt of the earth, stars shining in the darkness. These, these images of the church are designed to create a contrast between the dominant culture and the alternate society, the church, within it. You see, if you're a, like a star shining in a dark place, and this world is getting darker and darker by, by the month, um, that's what the church is to be. And the way we are like that, you see, is when we are loving one another sacrificially, unconditionally, completely. Francis Schaeffer was a well-known theologian of a generation ago, um, philosopher, pastor, author of lots of books on apologetics, a rational defense for Christianity. His last book was called The Final Apologetic. And you know what it was about? It was about love. He was arguing that the most compelling argument for Christian faith is the observable, practical love that true Christians have for one another. And he lamented the fact that the final apologetic is often the absent apologetic. But as we follow Jesus in discipleship, love becomes a powerful magnet in our communities. Let me close here with these words from Elton Trueblood. He said this, he said, one of the truly shocking passages of the gospel is that in which Jesus indicates that there is absolutely no substitute for a tiny, loving, caring, reconciling society. If it fails, he suggests, all is failure. There is no other way. He told this little bedraggled fellowship that they were actually the salt of the earth, and if the salt should fail, there would be no adequate preservative at all. 
He was staking all on one throw. One of the most powerful ways of turning people's loyalty to Christ is by loving others with the great love of God. And if there should emerge in our day such a fellowship, it would be an exciting event of momentous importance, a society of genuine loving friends set free from self-seeking struggle for personal prestige and from all unreality. It would be something unutterably priceless and powerful, and a wise person would travel any distance to join it. Our church just uh, celebrated uh, our 25-year anniversary this past year. And as you reflect back on the history of the church, you know, I was just reminded that the great story, the best stories that are told about that little church in Wexford, Pennsylvania, are stories of people who went through crisis. Their businesses were flooded out. And their small group went in and dug them out. <laughs> you know, they, they lost children or lost a spouse. And their serving teams, their friends from church showed up and provided meals and were taking relatives back and forth to the airport. You see what was happening. And, and, and I would see again and again new faces that would come into the church and they would say, I, I saw the way your church responded to the crisis that our neighbors went through. That's why I came here. Let me close by praying the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. And uh, <clears throat> then we're going to open up our prayer rails. I'm going to ask the care team to come forward and the music team to come. They're going to play a couple songs. I, I do want to close uh, with one last challenge and application. If you want to come, uh, uh, the care leaders will pray with anyone who has a need. But if, if you want to just simply drive a nail in the, in the sand and say, I want to make a response to this. Here's what I would challenge you to do. Do a, a seven-day experiment in which you get a list of the one another's, and all you got to do is Google it. Uh, just say, uh, what are the one another's of the New Testament? And then every day, look at that list and pick one that you want to creatively apply. They're very simple. They're very easy. Uh, and then say, okay, every day I'm going to apply one of those one another commands. Serve one another. Encourage one another, whatever it is. Uh, and then uh, journal your experience. Doesn't have to be long, just a couple sentences or a paragraph in which you say, uh, uh, here's what I did today to follow Jesus. Uh, and then enlist a spouse, a friend that you can check in with a couple times in the course of the week just to share what you're doing, and that'll encourage everybody. Think what would happen. So a whole congregation begins to actually apply what Jesus taught. Well, this was Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and it's my prayer for you. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thank you.